So we're going places, not where you're currently living. It's not the United States of America. It's not really even on this globe, this earth. Our dwelling place is in God. It is found in his presence. It is found in his power and his sustaining life. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, a ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. Speaking of Psalm 90, Martin Luther said, Why then should we fear if this God favors us? Why should we tremble at the anger of the whole world? If he is our dwelling place, shall we not be safe? Though the heaven should go to wreck. For we have a Lord greater than all the world. Now, given the fear and anxieties that might occur in the life of the believer during the times in which we live, Pastor Chris has recently presented a series of messages from the book of Psalms to his congregants that we believe will be profitable to your soul. Join us today as Pastor Chris begins a message from Psalm 90, where we are reminded to number our days. Now, if you would, please grab your Bibles and turn with Pastor Chris to Psalm 90. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 90, Psalm 90. It seems good to continue our overview of the Psalms, just looking into the Psalms during this time, that we might be encouraged and strengthened and also challenged by the very things that challenge the nation of Israel and that have challenged God's people really down throughout the ages through this book of hymns, this book of worship, and we want to continue to worship the Lord this morning as we look into Psalm 90. Psalm 90, beginning in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You say, you turn man back to dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Why should the spirit of mortal be proud? Like a fast flitting meteor, a fast flying cloud, a flash of the lightning, a break of the wave, he passes from life to his rest in the grave. The leaves of the oak and the willow shall fade, be scattered around and together be laid, and the young and the old and the low and the high shall molder to dust and together shall lie. 
Tis the wink of an eye, tis the draught of a breath, from the blossom of health to the paleness of death. From the gilded saloon to the bier and the shroud, oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? From the poem Mortality by William Knox. And we tend to do everything possible to avoid looking closely at or thinking deeply about death. A crisis like this, however, in which death is in the news and on our minds should cause us to pause for a moment in our busy lives and contemplate the end to which we will all come. In the best of times, death is the end of every man, and death could come at any moment. So we must take time to number our days that we might live wisely. And what we'll see this morning as we work our way through this psalm is that the eternal God is sovereign over life and death. Thus, our entire lives must be lived in pursuit of God's preferences and priorities, for we will give an account to him at the end. The eternal God is sovereign over life and death. Thus, our entire lives must be lived in pursuit of God's preferences and priorities, for we will give an account to him at the end. Death and judgment are coming quickly, so live wisely. Now, Psalm 90, if you'll drop your eyes to the text, you'll see that the, the title to this particular psalm, the title that goes along with the text itself, says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And so we simply take that at face value. Although this is much disputed by those who study the Psalms, it's in there with the text. It comes along with the rest of what the text says. And so we would understand that this particular Psalm was composed by Moses, the man of God, it says here, the one who followed after God, who loved God, who served God, who was used of God in powerful ways. Now, our best understanding is that the psalm would have been written near the end of the time of Moses' life, perhaps as they are encamped upon the plains of Moab, about to move into the promised land, which Joshua will then take over from Moses and move the people there. And perhaps he is contemplating the thousands upon thousands who died in the wilderness during the 40 years of wandering. In fact, every man over the age of 20, except for Moses and Joshua and Caleb. Thus, it is the oldest psalm in the book of Psalms, for it was written long before the time of the monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon. James Boyce says, Psalm 90 is a reflection of human mortality and the brevity of life, plus quiet confidence in God, who is the steadfast hope of the righteous. This psalm is probably the greatest passage in the Bible, contrasting the grandeur of God with man's frailty. And certainly this is a good time to be considering that reality. Man is frail. God is great, and we need to consider our own lives in light of our need and God's provision. So join me as we contrast God's eternal holiness and man's desperate sinfulness, then God's infinite provision with man's desperate need, all the while seeking to understand how we might properly number our days and thus live wisely and productively for God's glory. So first, let's look at God's eternal holiness contrasted with man's desperate sinfulness. This really takes us from verse 1 all the way to verse 11. In our text, in verse 1, Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And the word he uses here for God is Adonai, master, ruler, the authoritative one, the one who has the right to direct and to guide our lives in all ways. And he says here, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. He opens this psalm by just reminding his people and really crying out to the Lord, uh, offering praise back up to the Lord for the fact that it is in God alone that we find our refuge. It is in God alone that we can truly dwell securely because that's the idea. God for us, when it says he is our dwelling place in all generations, he is an oasis of refreshment 
an encampment. He is only the only one who can provide safety, security, and sustenance at any time, and in fact, at every time. So ever since the world has been created, really, it says here, before even the mountains were born or the earth was created, God, God existed, God was. And so as he creates the world, he then becomes and is the only safe place to dwell. God alone, because he is everlasting and infinite, can actually make provision for his people. Psalm 71.3, be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. Psalm 91.9, for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. Deuteronomy 33.26-27, which Moses also wrote, there is none like the God of Jerusalem who rides in the heavens to, uh, to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. So this is the nature of God. And Moses praises God at the very beginning of the psalm about our finiteness and recognizing the fact that God alone is eternal, that he alone can make provision for us, that in him we are to find our dwelling place and to find our refuge. It's reflected in Hebrews 11 as the writer focuses on the nature of, of the great men of faith and what they were really, really looking forward to. They weren't looking to the earth itself as their place of dwelling. We tend to think that this is really where we live, but it isn't. We dwell and we live in God himself. And Hebrews 11.10, speaking of the faith of Moses, says, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So our dwelling place is not where you're currently living. It's not the United States of America. It's not really even on this globe, this earth. Our dwelling place is in God. It is found in his presence. It is found in his power and his sustaining life. The text goes on to say, Moses goes on to say that God alone is eternal. This is why he alone can be our dwelling place. Verse two, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the eternally infinite one. Yes, our, our souls, the souls that, uh, of men are eternal from the standpoint of once they were created, they live forever. But God alone is infinitely eternal, eternal into eternity past and certainly into eternity future. He alone is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. So why would we find our safety, our security, or our provision in anyone else? It's impossible. God has created everything. So therefore, we should and must and have the great privilege of finding our dwelling place in him. Job 38.4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? This is God speaking with Job about Job's complaint back towards God. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations? Tell me if you have understanding who set its measurements since you know, or stretched the line on it, or what were its, on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone. God determines everything because he is the everlasting one who created everything. And so we should find and run to him for our security. Psalm 102, 24. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old, you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands, even though even they will perish, but you will endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing, you will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. The earth will perish. This present earth that God himself brought into existence, he will take it out of existence. And if you find your dwelling place in anyone but him, 
and you will suffer the eternal consequences of going out of existence or really entering into a period of time under punishment from God's hand away from his caring presence, away from the abiding presence of God. We are not to worship creation or depend upon it. God existed before creation and he will exist after it. The created world does not define God and he is not somehow bound up in it. This is the error of essentially every other kind of religion, that somehow God is bound up in the world that he created. Somehow he is tied to it integrally from the standpoint of that it exists because he exists. No, or, or, or God exists because the world exists. No, he created it and he is above it and he transcends it. And when he causes it to go out of existence, he will continue to exist. Therefore, find your dwelling place in God alone. So God is the eternal dwelling. He is our everlasting dwelling place. And the next point in the text that Moses makes is that God is sovereign over life and death. He is the only one who can provide security, safety, and provision because he is the one who determines the time of our living and the time of our dying. Verse 3. You turn men back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You've swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They are like grass, which sprouts anew. This phrase, you turn men back into dust, is actually a very powerful one. The word for dust here is really to be pounded or ground into dust. It is God who created man from the dust of the ground, and it is God who takes man back to dust. It is not an accident. It is not simply a natural happening when men die. This is what God does. He brings to life, and then he sends away to death. It says, return, O children of men. That is all will return back to the earth because God says this. God mandates that this will be the case. Genesis 3.19, God said to Adam, by the sweat of your face, this was his curse for having turned away from God, for having sinned in the garden. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Psalm 104, 29, you hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. So as we see death happening around us, all around us, and even more clearly in our minds, certainly at this particular time, we need to remember that this is no accidental happening. This is the work of God as a result of sin. And we'll see that even more clearly in just a moment. Man dies, he goes back to dust because man is sinful, because the earth has been cursed through the sin of mankind. And God's authority and sovereignty is such that he is in complete control of the time of man's death. No death is ever an accident. God alone knows the time of man and in his sovereign decree directs the events of the world in which the death of every man takes place in his own timing. Now, a question that might spring to your minds from this is, well, since death is a result of sin and many people die as a result of evil done against them, then is God the author of evil? Certainly not. The fact that sinful men die, the fact that men die according to sinful things that happen to them, does not in any way make God the author of evil. You see, the world and its people, which are tainted to the very core, of, to the very core by sin, cannot lie outside God's sovereign control. He can and does use the evil of the world brought about by sin to accomplish his divine purposes. God is in control of weather events, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, human events, 
wars, civil unrest, criminal activity, natural events, sickness, accidents, and of course, any and every virus that has ever arisen to plague men. If God cannot use evil events and people, then once the fall of man took place and the earth and mankind were tainted with sin, God could never have ordained another sovereign act, but simply would have been forced to let the world run its course. The world is tainted with sin. Men are tainted with sin. And yet God uses them for his own purposes without himself ever being tainted by the sin that men introduced. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know that from the rising to the setting sun, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Amos 3, 6. If a trumpet blows in the city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? God is in control of all disasters. They are not outside of his sovereign work, even though the sin involved in them never taints him. Human beings are evil, yes, and the earth is tainted and corrupt, yes, but God always means good. Consider the very most sinful, corrupt act of all of history. That is the killing of the Lord Jesus, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, Acts 4.27. Even that act was not outside of the sovereign hand of God. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Acts 2.23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, speaking to the religious leaders, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you have human responsibility. The sin of men was responsible for the death of Jesus. Yet, Behind that, the purposes of God were being accomplished through his ultimate direction that this would take place. Genesis 50, 20, as Joseph reflects upon the evil that his brothers committed towards him and selling him into slavery, says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And so it is best to see the sin in the world, that is God's use of the evil that is in the world, to be the complex working of God's sovereignty because he must and does oversee all Satan's activity and then the, the sin of human nature, that is our sinful self and its desires. Everywhere in scripture, we see this pattern demonstrated. Take, for example, Job. God determined to use Job to demonstrate his power to safeguard the faith of his people. Satan moved in the events to bring calamity on Job. Natural disasters and evil human beings take their toll on him. Job attributes all of this to the righteous hand of God. Job 121. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And every blessing and in every calamity we see the hand of God and by his grace and if we are rightly related to him then we can and should thank him for all that he does the good and the 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 hard difficult things that result from sin all appeals in this life then should be made to the one who takes us to the next life 
Only the one with the power to control the timing of life and death should be trusted or looked upon for help and provision. Men do not take other men to death ultimately. It is God who appoints their time and takes them to death. Viruses do not kill men naturally, as it were. It is God who uses those things to take men to his end, to return him back to dust. And so it is God who must be appealed to in times such as this. Science will not truly be able to help us. It could perhaps provide for us a vaccine which will keep us from getting the virus, but there is no vaccine which will prevent death. None. Only God, in his grace and by his power, can turn death into the gateway to life. Moses goes on to demonstrate the reality of God's sovereign control by stating that he controls time itself. You see, God is not bound up in time as we are. He is the one who oversees time. He created it, and he determines all of the moments of every, of every day and of every year. Look at verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. God is sovereign over life and death. God turns men back into dust, and God rules over time. He's not constrained by it. He rules it. God's infinite nature causes him to view time differently than we do. A thousand years seems like a long time for us, but it is like a single night's watch, four hours, or perhaps like a 24-hour day, like yesterday that has already passed. Now, this does not mean that when God says something happened in a day, that it was actually a thousand years. Just as when God says something took a thousand years, it does not mean it actually took in time a day. This simply expresses the vantage point of one who is eternal. For us, a thousand years seems like a really long time. For God, who is infinite, it does not. So this phrase, picked up by Peter in 2 Peter 3.8, which says, but do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. It doesn't mean that time means something different to God, that a day is different or a year is different. It's that time seems like something different to God than for us. We have to experience each moment God is outside of that, able to see and understand as each moment moves forward. We are to trust neither ourselves or other men, for we are finite. We are stuck in time. We live according to the events of the time that God has planned. We only see the immediate present. We don't see, we can't look back and know exactly the past, even when we've just lived it. We don't even remember it properly. And certainly we can never see the future with any certainty. God sees and plans both past or all past, present, and future. Men should not be trusted or hoped in because they pass away in an instant compared to the unchangeable eternality of God. He rules time. There are no thousand-year empires. There, there are no infinite eternal kings except for one, and that is God alone. So why trust them? Why trust in uh, our political figures? Why trust in our scientific figures? Why trust in our media figures who live for maybe 70 or 80 years, as we will see? In comparison to the eternal God who has always existed and will always exist, the very God who rules over the time through which every man must move. But God does not move through time in that way. He is not governed by it. He rules it. And our text says that God sweeps men away. This is his active work. It is not accidental. Again, 
He sweeps them away. He says, you've swept them away like a flood, like a man standing on the bank of a river, pondering its beauty perhaps. There's a flash flood that has happened somewhere. It has rained up above him in a canyon. And as he stands there contemplating it, the flash flood instantly takes him away. He's gone. He disappears in a moment. You swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. Their days, as it were, turn from day to night immediately. He takes them away. Job 27, 20, terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away by night. You see, death comes quickly in an eternal perspective. The suddenness with which men are born and live and die. It is though standing on the bank of a river one moment, swept away at another. And like grass, Moses goes on to really continue this illustration in verse six in the morning. So, or in the end of verse five, in the morning, they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening, it fades and withers away. So he says, he gives another illustration. It's like standing on the bank of a river when a flash flood comes. It's like waking up in the morning to see the grass as it is revitalized by the dew, but then by the evening, it is already withered. It's already been burned up. It no longer has its beauty that it had in the morning. And this is the nature of men. This cycle of springing anew, there are those who are born and then they die. Then the next generation comes and they are born and more die. Men's lives are like this cycle of grass. This is the cycle of mankind. One generation is born, quickly passes from the earth. Another generation arises to take its place only to disappear just as quickly for all of the generations. In the view of God, these things are happening in a moment. Even to us, they seem to take these long periods of time. Psalm 103, 15, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. In the New Testament, Peter also acknowledges this reality and really compares the, the transitory nature of the human condition with the, with the word of God itself, which represents the character and nature of God. First, Peter 1, 24. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So Moses makes very clear that God alone can be our eternal dwelling because God is everlasting. God is the one who rules over time. God is the one who is in charge of the deaths, the deaths of men, turning them back to dust, sweeping them away like a flood, putting them to sleep as it were. But now Moses wants us to know, he wants his people to know that none of this is by accident. There's a reason that all of this happens. God is operating according to an eternal system of righteousness and justice, which require that men go on to death. So drop your eyes down to verse seven, for we have been consumed by your anger. As he speaks of this, God turning us back to dust, sweeping us away, putting us to sleep. He gives the reason, don't miss this. The reason that men go away to death, the reason and the way that God takes, him, it takes them is by consuming them in his anger. And by your wrath, it says, we have been dismayed. Well, what is causing this anger? What is causing this wrath? Verse eight, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. This is why men die. They die because they have sinned and all have sinned and so all die. As Adam and Eve made this choice in the garden, they then put into place, they, they set into motion this continual cycle of living and dying because the wages of sin without exception are 
death. That's the most fundamental law or rule that governs the entire universe. It is the spiritual law. The wages of sin is death. And that's what Moses is saying. Perhaps contemplating the deaths of all of those in the wilderness, the thousands upon thousands who died, probably every day, hundreds of people dying as they spend 40 years in the wilderness and everyone over the age of 20 dies. It was like a, it was like a walking picture of God's judgment against sin that he took his own people through. But it's not confined to the nation of Israel, certainly. It wasn't confined to that one particular time in history. All men die because they have sinned. And this death is the holy, righteous judgment upon sin. God is sovereign in the judgment of sin. And God's wrath against sin is consuming. We've been consumed by your anger. All of these words are powerful. Crushed to dust, swept away, disappearing or, or, or withering away into heat, being consumed by the anger of God and by the wrath of God. And these are not like our anger. See, we mistake God's wrath for ours like some fleeting, capricious, selfish expression of our own desire. No, God's wrath is a holy, just wrath against sin. His anger is righteous anger because his character and his nature have been violated by the very ones that he created. So the natural pattern, the seemingly natural pattern of death has its roots in God's judgment. Men do not live forever because they are under the judgment of God due to the sin of Adam and the judgment of God on their own sin. His anger then consumes them. This is how it must be. This is the just punishment for sin against a holy God. The death is seen not as an accident of cycle of birth and death, but as the specific consequence of, our, of God's personal judgment upon our personal sin. And the Bible makes this clear. Moses here is simply articulating in an Old Testament sense the very thing that Paul says in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Every man begins in this state under the wrath of God. Ephesians 2 also makes this clear. We are all children of wrath, even as the rest. God's wrath is experienced at this level as God brings about the judgment of death and the difficulties that happen as a result of sin. Only when God graciously brings a man to salvation is his wrath transformed by grace. And this means that what were once judgment and punishment now become for his good. Romans 5.12 again reveals to us how this death came into the world. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Here we have, in one sense, made very clear the whole problem of evil. Where did death come from? It did not come from God. It came from man who sinned. It doesn't answer all our questions about the nature of God's sovereignty and relationship to death and sin. But scripture makes it very clear. Man sinned. It is man's sin which has brought about death because in God's holy economy, sin must be judged. Deuteronomy 2, 14, and again, this is perhaps what Moses is contemplating. He wrote the book of Deuteronomy. He also wrote this psalm. He says, as he comes to the end of, of the period of wandering in the wilderness, he says, now the time it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years. That's two years at the base of Mount Sinai, then 38 years in the wilderness. Until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp, the Lord had as the Lord had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. So it came about that when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people, we were allowed to enter into the land. 
So we know that through specific incidences of God's judgment, that sin brings judgment. But we know that this is simply the expression of the more general pattern of all men sinning and all men being judged. And this, again, this happens even to believers. That is this temporal, these temporal kinds of judgment against sin or God's discipline against sin. Consider the Christians in Corinth in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. They were taking, partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he says, for he who eats and drinks, drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. So while God does not take believers to eternal punishment, he still causes a reckoning for sin to come upon them. God always recognizes and sees sin and then brings about the proper either discipline or punishment as a result of it. Now be careful here. Something like a coronavirus certainly is a result of sin, a sinful fallen world. Certainly men are worthy to go into death because of their sin, but it is not as though every event that happens in the world is a result of some specific judgment. That is God seeing a specific act and judging it. Consider what Jesus said in Luke 13, 1. Now on that occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. These innocent as it were, had they had not themselves done anything specifically wrong, and Pilate killed them as an example. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, all will likewise perish. What is he saying? Certainly sin or death happens as a result of sin. And yet even general death, the death of those who didn't do anything specifically sinful, that is some particular act for which they are judged. They will be judged for their character and nature of sin that is tainted with sin. He goes on to say, uh, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Do you suppose that those who have died of the coronavirus in our particular time are somehow more sinful than you or I who have not died? The answer is no. Death will come to us all if we don't run and to Jesus and find our rest in him and our life in him. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that's gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the ministry of grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages, not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and our college-age ministry. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again on Friday as Pastor Chris concludes this message from Psalm 90. Until then, we hope that the word of Christ will dwell in you richly.